what's your favorite kind of movie? You know, do you like to go to the movies? What's your favorite kind of movie? You know, some people like uh, action-adventure movies. Some people like romantic comedies. Some people like um, superhero movies. I mean, there's no shortage of superhero movies that are out today. Uh, some people like animated movies. You know, not long ago, I took my grandson, Jack, my oldest grandson, to uh, the movie one Saturday morning because I had taken, Sandy and I had taken all the kids or before, but he got sick and wasn't able to go. So I took him by himself. We went to see Spies in Disguise, this animated movie. And we walked in the movie theater and the first people I saw in the movie theater were some people from my small group. And immediately when I saw them, I started to look around for their grandkids. And they didn't have any grandkids with them. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how cool is that, that these friends of mine, they, are, they know the kind of movie they like, and they're out on a Saturday morning just for a wholesome time of entertainment. What's your favorite kind of movie? My favorite kind of movies have always been the dramatic ones, the really, really dramatic ones. My family has made fun of me for that for years because I like to watch movies with real pre people and real problems and real emotions, and the truth is oftentimes those kinds of movies are just heartbreaking and sad. Not, not, some time ago, I was talking to my daughter, Tricia, who was just out here on the platform, a part of the worship team, and she asked me if I had seen a certain movie that was out, and I said yes, and she said, was it sad? And I said, only in a dark and depressing kind of way. <laughs> Those are the kind of movies that I really like. I like movies that have real storylines that can't be altered and can't be sanitized. They just have to be experienced. And the reason why I say that is because that's what I think of when I open my Bible to Matthew chapter 26, and we find ourselves in the real-life drama of the last hours of Jesus. We saw that in earnest a couple of weeks ago. We took a break from Matthew last week, as you know, as you know to celebrate the $1 million anniversary of change for a dollar. But two weeks ago, we saw this drama of the last hour of Jesus' lives begin in earnest as we looked at a message called How to Avoid a Lifetime of Regret. And we started in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 26, and we worked our way all the way through verse 75, and we focused on Peter and all of the different mistakes Peter made on that last night of Jesus' life. Began, if you remember, with Peter telling, or excuse me, Jesus telling all the disciples that on that evening they would all fall away on account of him. But Peter speaks up and says, I'll never do it. Even if everyone else does, I won't. Even if I have to die for you, I will never, ever forsake you. And Jesus has to tell Peter that before the rooster crows that night, that very night that he will have denied Jesus three times. And then we see uh, Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see Jesus in a way like we'd never seen him before. He had always been in complete control over every circumstance, no matter what the challenge was ahead of him. But now we see him in a way that we'd never seen him before. And he literally enters the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And the simplest way to understand what he was saying is he's saying, I feel so sad in this moment that it feels like I'm going to die. That's how deep the sadness is that I feel in this moment. And then he prays that agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knows every detail of what's about to happen to him. And remember, because he doesn't want to feel alone in that moment, he takes his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him to be there with him, close to him when he prays, only to be disappointed on three separate occasions as he comes 
back from his time of prayer to find them sleeping. The next thing that happens is Judas, whose heart has been filled with Satan, to betray Jesus, comes with a group of soldiers to arrest him and Judas, with no sign of guilt and no sign of remorse, walks up to Jesus in the garden and kisses him on the cheek to identify him as the one to be arrested. And when you don't think it could get any worse than that, the story ends with Peter doing exactly what Jesus said he would do and denying Jesus three different times. And it's gritty, it's dark, it's emotional, and it's heartbreaking. Luke's gospel tells the same story of Peter's denial that Matthew's does, but Luke's gospel adds another detail that we don't find anywhere else in the gospels. When Luke gets to Peter's denial, this is what he writes. This is Luke chapter 22, verses 60 and 61. He writes, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And in Luke's gospel, that's the third time that Peter denies knowing Jesus. And then Luke goes on to write, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And then here's the detail that Luke adds that no one else does. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine what that moment must have been like? Everything that had unfolded from the Last Supper where Jesus said, tonight before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Everything that happened along the way and now when it actually happens and Jesus knows that the end has begun, he looks at Peter and their eyes meet. How do you think Peter felt in that moment? Now, since we looked at Matthew 26 two weeks ago, again, strictly from the perspective of Peter, in verses 31 through 75, there was one little section of that passage that we had to skip over because it really didn't have much to do with Peter. And that's the passage that we're going to look at this weekend because we're studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 59, or 67 rather, 57 through 67. And if you've got your Bibles open there and you're able this morning, I want you to go ahead and stand with me so we can read this together. And when I, when I, before I read, let me just tell you something, just be completely honest with you this morning. You know, um, there are some passages in the Bible that are easy to teach. They just lend themselves to easy teaching. The message is clear, the applications are clear. And then there are some that are not. And this is one of them. And so, if you can multitask today, as you listen, say a prayer for me, because I've struggled with this passage. You follow along as I read, beginning in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, 
It is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always, every week, ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. The unfolding drama of Jesus' life continues in this passage as Jesus is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane to the home of a man named Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And if you're someone who likes to take notes, I'll tell you that there are three things that stand out to me in those verses that we just read. The first one is this. If you'd like to take notes, write down next to number one. Hatred is a dangerous emotion. Hatred is a dangerous emotion. And I say that because we see the true level of the hatred that the religious leaders had for Jesus in all that they were willing to do to kill him, something they had been trying to do for a long, long time. I did a lot of reading this past week about the judicial system in ancient Israel. And while it was fascinating on a personal level, there's no way I can give you a complete picture or a complete explanation of what it was like in our brief time together. So let me just give you some highlights this morning. The Jews had always prided themselves in their sense of fairness and justice, so much so that the judicial systems in the Western world, including right here in the United States of America, have their foundations in the legal systems of ancient Israel. And the essence of Israel's judicial system is found in a single passage of Scripture in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. And this is what it says. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall judge the people, note this, fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Every aspect of the Jewish legal system was developed with these words in mind and with a clear emphasis on fairness and justice in every circumstance. And so here's how that developed from Deuteronomy chapter 16. Over time, the Jews determined that every community that had at least 120 men who were the heads of families could form a local council. And each local council became known as the Sanhedrin. The word Sanhedrin comes from the Greek word synedrion, which literally translated means council. But in addition to the local Sanhedrins, the local councils in the different towns and different villages, collectively for the Jews, there was what was also known as the Great Sanhedrin. And the Great Sanhedrin was a group of men composed of chief priests, elders, scribes, teachers of the law, and ultimately the high priest. And the total number of men in the Great Sanhedrin was 71. It had to be an odd number in case of a tie. Members of the local Sanhedrins were chosen on the basis of maturity and wisdom, while members of the great Sanhedrin 
were chosen because they distinguished themselves on the local level and because along the way they had served some level of apprenticeship with the great Sanhedrin. But here's what we need to understand in the context of Matthew chapter 26. Before Jesus even came into the world, membership in the great Sanhedrin had been compromised by appointments that were based on religious or political favoritism and influence. In other words, by the time Jesus came into the world, the great Sanhedrin had become corrupt. But even with that, friends, even with that corruption on the highest level of judicial leadership in Israel, the Jewish people, for the most part, still clung to the requirements of fairness and impartiality and justice that we find in that foundational passage in Deuteronomy 16. And they clung to those things primarily through something that was known as the rabbinic or the rabbinical law. What was the rabbinic law? The rabbinic law was basically the Old Testament law or the law of Moses, the written Old Testament law, the written law of Moses put into action through the practical teachings of the rabbis. And so the rabbis, the teachers in Jesus' day, in Old Testament days, took the Old Testament law and they said, this is how it's supposed to be lived out in practical ways. And a big part of that was dedicated to making sure that there was fairness and impartiality and justice for anyone who was accused of a crime. And that includes, in the context of Matthew 26, Jesus. And so, some of the guidelines, some of the guarantees that the rabbinic law gave to someone who was an accused criminal would be things like this. The right to a public trial. That's something Jesus never had. The right to a defense counsel. That's something Jesus never had. The right to be convicted only by the testimony of at least two reliable witnesses, something that Jesus never had. See, according to the rabbinical law, all these trials that happened, including this trial that Jesus went through, was supposed to be open. It was open so that there could be public scrutiny. It was open And the defendant was supposed to have the right to bring his own evidence and his own witnesses. But Jesus, on the way to the cross, got none of these things, not a single one of them. There are all kinds of other safeguards built into the Jewish legal system to ensure fairness. For example, to guard against false witnesses. The rabbinic law said that a person who knowingly gave false testimony in a trial, if discovered, would suffer the same punishment of the accused had the accused been found guilty. Or in other words, if you were called to be a witness in a capital case, a capital case is a case where the punishment would be execution. If you were called to be a witness against someone in a capital case and your testimony was a lie, your testimony was false, and it was discovered that your testimony was false, you would be the one who would be executed. You would receive the punishment. And as you might well imagine, that discouraged the possibility of false witnesses and false testimony along the way. It was pretty effective in Jesus' day. Here's another safeguard. According to rabbinic law, if you were a witness in a capital case, again, a capital case is a case where execution is the punishment, and it was your eyewitness testimony, 
your personal witness testimony that caused the accused to be found guilty, then you were obligated to be involved literally to the point of beginning the carrying out of the execution. So if you were called in a capital case to be a witness and your testimony was so powerful that the person on trial was found guilty because of your words, because of your witness, because of your testimony, you were the one who would be responsible to begin the execution of that person. How crazy is that? But you know, that shouldn't surprise us any. Do you remember that story in the Gospel of John where Jesus is teaching one day and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law drag a woman in front of him who had been caught in adultery? Do you remember that story? And they said, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, this woman's been caught in adultery. The law of Moses commands us to stone her. What do you say we should do? Do you remember? And they were trying to trap Jesus because they thought this is perfect. If he says, let's stone her, they'll say, you're not the rabbi everybody says you are. You have a cold heart. You're not compassionate. There's no mercy in you. You just, matter of fact, said, let's just kill her for her sin, for her mistake. But on the other hand, he says, let's let her go. Let's give her grace. Then they say, then you're breaking the law. You are in defiance of the law. They thought they were in a perfect no-lose situation where they could trap Jesus regardless of his answer. But what did Jesus do? He knelt down the ground and started to write with his finger in the sand. We have no idea what he was writing. There's speculation, but nobody will know for sure until we get to heaven. But it says that as those religious leaders were there, they continued to question him. And do you remember what Jesus said finally? I think this is John chapter 8 and verse 7, he said, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. If you're so convinced, if your testimony is so real and so strong in your mind, then pick up a stone and throw it. And that sounds a little odd until you understand the history of the Jewish judicial system. Well, I could go on and on with this kind of information because there were many other safeguards that were built into the system. But because these Jewish religious leaders were so consumed with their hatred for Jesus, they wanted to kill him no matter what they had to do. And so this fundamental commitment to justice and fairness and impartiality that was rooted in the words of God all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 wasn't just overlooked. It was completely abandoned like it never even existed. And the legal proceedings that led to Jesus' execution were a mockery of everything the Jews believed about justice and fairness because they just hated him so much. You know, when you, we're just looking at Jesus' life and we're just looking at the end of his life from the perspective of the gospel of Matthew, you have to step back and look at all four gospels to get a comprehensive picture of all the different things that happened to Jesus at the end of his life. You have to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put together what you might call a harmony of the gospels. And when you do that, when you put all four gospels together, then you discover that Jesus actually went through six separate trials on that night. They could be divided into two sections, there was the religious court, the religious trials, and there was the Roman court, the Roman trials. And there were three parts to each. There were three parts of the religious court because Jesus was taken first, and this is not recorded in Matthew's account, he was taken first to a man named Annas, who was the former high priest. And then he was taken second to a man named Caiaphas. That's where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 26. 
just as a point of information, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas, who was the former high priest. But in Jesus' day, once you were a high priest, you were always a high priest. You might not just be the one who was being recognized in the moment. So he started in front of Annas, and then he went before Caiaphas, and ultimately he went before the Sanhedrin. And that's that great Sanhedrin that I was explaining to you about a little earlier. But in addition, there were three different Roman trials that Jesus went through because first he went to see Pilate and then Pilate sent him to Herod and then Herod sent him back to Pilate which is where Jesus was ultimately assigned to the cross because the Jewish leaders did not have the ability to sentence someone to an execution that can only come from the Roman governor, and that's who Pilate was. And in the process of all of this, this is what happened to Jesus. He was spit on, he was beaten, he was slapped, and he was mocked. We read about that in the text that we just read. That was Matthew 26 and verse 67. We get to Matthew chapter 27, which we'll, where we'll be next week, and we'll see that also that he was scourged or flogged, which means he was severely beaten with a whip that was made up of several leather lashes, each of them with pieces of metal or bone attached at the end of the strips. And this was all designed literally to remove, literally to remove the flesh from the back of the one that was being punished. And that's what Jesus went through. And after that, Pilate's soldiers mocked him by placing a crown of twisted thorns on his head. They put a scarlet robe on his back that was now just open, open wounds from top to bottom, and they put a staff in his hand. They knelt down in front of him, and they mocked him, and then they spit on him, and then Matthew says they struck him on the head over and over and over again with that crown of thorns sitting there. And then he was nailed to a cross. And all of this happened for no other reason, at least from an earthly perspective, than to satisfy the hatred of the religious leaders. You see, hatred is a dangerous emotion because hatred takes control of us to the point where we lose touch with everything that's rational. I know the Bible tells us that there can be some positive aspects of hate when you hate the right things. For example, Psalm 97 and verse 10, the first part of the verse says, let those who love the Lord hate evil. And the Bible tells us that we should hate the things that God hates. And so there is a positive aspect of hate. Every emotion that we have in our lives comes directly from God. And there's a good and a bad aspect to that depending on how in control we are of our lives. But when hatred is focused in other places, other places beyond the things that God hates, it puts us in a dangerous position. And the Bible makes it clear that there's really no room for any level of hatred in the life of a believer toward another person. Look at these words on the screen from 1 John chapter 2. First verse 9 and then verse 11. John writes and says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Then in verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. And that's the exact reality of what had happened to those religious leaders. They were blinded by their hatred. All they saw was the darkness because all they could think about was how much they hated Jesus. Why did they hate Jesus the way they did? 
There are lots of different ways to answer that question. I wrote down several in my notes just real quickly. I think, number one, they hated him because he confronted their empty religion. And that's exactly what it was. Listen, if you've been with us since the beginning in this study of the Gospel of Matthew, which goes all the way back to November of 2016... Of course, you know that along the way, because I divided Matthew into different sections, along the way, sometimes when we completed a section or a couple of sections, we took a break and talked about something else. But if you've been with us from the beginning, you know that Matthew, much of Matthew is dedicated to the reality of the empty religion that was being practiced by the Jewish religious leaders. I go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. That was one section that we looked at. And if you remember, I told you that I was calling that particular section of Matthew's gospel, just say no to religion. Because there's a difference. This is what we see all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. There's a difference between being religious and being righteous. And that's what Jesus exposed with his teaching. Being religious oftentimes, and this was certainly the reality for the religious leaders that were his enemies, being religious oftentimes is nothing more than just putting yourself in a position to follow a list of rules and regulations. These are the things that I have to do. These are the things that I can't do. And as long as I follow the rules, just externally follow the rules, then my life is right. But oftentimes, and this was the case with the religious leaders, people do that and their hearts are as far from God as they can be. Are they following Following all the rules? Absolutely. But their hearts are a long way from God. And that's the way the religious leaders were. There's a difference between being religious and righteous. A righteous person is the person who has a heart that seeks God, that desires God, that wants to please God on the most basic level. And so they hated him because he exposed the emptiness of their religion. I wrote down they hated him because he loved outcasts. And religious leaders in Jesus' day hated outcasts. In fact, they didn't just hate outcasts. They didn't have time for outcasts. They gave no consideration to them at all. I think the best example of that in the Gospels is found in the Gospel of Luke in the 18th chapter. It's the story that Jesus told that we call the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember that? Jesus is there one day, and he tells this story. He, he says to some who are, what did, how did it begin? He said something like this. To those who were overconfident in their own righteousness, Jesus told this story. So he told this story directly to the religious leaders. He said a, a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple one day to pray. And if you remember the story, he says it's the Pharisee that begins to pray first. And how, this is how the Pharisee prayed. He said, God, I thank you, remember, that I am not like other men. That's how he began his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he began to list other men. He said, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. He said, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And in contrast to that, Jesus said the Pharisee, when it came time for him to pray, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, that Pharisee said, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. Who do you think it was that Jesus chose to spend his time with? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and tax collectors. And the religious leaders hated him because he loved outcasts. 
He cared about people that no one else even noticed, the most marginalized people in the world. I wrote down number three, that they hated him because he didn't follow their rules. I wrote down number four, they hated him because he offered people forgiveness for their sins. They couldn't believe it when he did that. And I could go on and on and on. And ultimately, that hate consumed them to the point where they were willing to do anything, break any law, any rule, any scripture to see him dead. And because of their hatred for Jesus, these religious men, and I'll just use the same language that John used in those verses from 1 John 2 that we looked at a minute ago, these religious men who claimed to be in the light walked in the darkness. Hatred is a dangerous emotion. So I'm compelled to ask this question to you. Do you hate anybody in the world today? There's a lot of hatred in our world today. I told you a little bit of a story of about hatred last weekend if you were here at the end of the message. I ask myself the question, do I hate anybody? Because, you know, we can all have blind spots, right? They say, no, I don't hate anybody, but on, but on closer examination, maybe that's not the right answer. And so here's what I came up with. I would say, I don't hate anybody. There are a lot of people I can't stand to be around, but I don't hate them. Do you think there's really any difference between the two, practically speaking? And we've got to guard ourselves because hatred is a dangerous emotion. All right, I got two minutes to do two points, so this is going to be dicey. <laughs> right down next to number two. Sometimes silence is the best response. Now we go back to our Matthew passage and we go back to, let's just go back quickly to verse 62 and following. If you know, the, the passage began with the chief priest and the Sanhedrin. They were there and they were looking for false evidence against Jesus because they wanted to put him to death. They couldn't find any, even though I know, I think this is interesting, even though many false witnesses came forward. It says, finally, two came forward and declared, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And that's what they hung their hat on. Verse 62 says, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let's just talk about this really quickly. They were so desperate to find some evidence to accuse Jesus that they were openly looking for false witnesses to come forward. And listen, with their motivation and their hatred, how how weak or how bizarre must have been the, the testimonies of these false witnesses if they couldn't accept them. They must have been really weak because they, the religious leaders knew that they wouldn't stand up to any level of scrutiny or else they would have chosen them. And finally, these two guys come forward and they misquote something that Jesus said all the way back in John chapter 2. Two came forward and said that Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Let me just give you some context for that. There are two times in Jesus' earthly ministry where he cleansed the temple. The first one happened in John chapter 2. When that happened, immediately afterwards, the Jews came to him and, say, show, and said, show us a sign so that we can know where your authority to do this kind of thing comes from. And what Jesus said to them is he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's literally what Jesus said. Now, the very next verse, that was, or two verses later, Jesus' words were verse 19 of John chapter 2. Two verses later, uh, John writes and says, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And so Jesus wasn't talking about destroying the temple, the big temple that had taken 47 years to build. 
He was talking about his own body. He was giving a prophetic message for the future. He was talking about his death and ultimate resurrection. But they misquoted what he said, and ultimately that's what they used to accuse him. But here's the most interesting thing in this part of the story to me. After those two false witnesses gave that false testimony, Caiaphas says to Jesus, are you not going to answer what is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? And the next thing that we read is Matthew says, but Jesus remained silent. Sometimes silence is the best response. Why did Jesus remain silent? Because Jesus knew in that moment that this wasn't any kind of an interview that was being done in pursuit of the truth. This was an interrogation filled with accusations and unsubstantiated allegations. And in that setting, the best response is silence. Can I tell you a great lesson that I have learned as a pastor over the years? And full disclosure, I learned this the hard way. It took a while for me to learn this. Never argue with a critic. Don't waste your time. Because critics are very rarely interested in the truth. Critics have usually already made up their mind, and now all they're interested in is name-calling and accusation. And oftentimes, when you fall into the trap of arguing with a critic, you fall into the trap of becoming just as irrational in your responses as they are. And sometimes, silence is our best response. I'm gonna put a passage from Proverbs chapter nine up on the screen, and I don't do this very often, but this is from The Message, which is not a translation of the Bible, it's a paraphrase of the Bible, but I like the way that it reads. If you reason with an arrogant cynic, you'll get slapped in the face. How many of you ever had that experience? Confront bad behavior and get a kick in the shins. So don't waste your time on a scoffer. All you get for your pain is abuse. But if you correct those who care about life, that's different. They'll love you for it. Save your breath for the wise. They'll be wiser for it. Tell good people what you know. They'll profit from it. But when it comes to a critic, when it comes to an enemy, when it comes to somebody who just wants to argue, sometimes silence is the best response. Now, you'll notice, you'll notice that initially, when Caiaphas says, basically, what do you say to these two guys? Or in other words, what do you say to these lies? Jesus was silent. But if you go back and you look, when Caiaphas asked Jesus a direct question, a direct question, Jesus answered. You look back at verse uh, 63, the latter part. And Caiaphas says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answered. He said, yes, it is as you say. Jesus didn't respond to his critics. He didn't respond to lies, but he answered direct questions. You know, here's a prayer that we all need to regularly pray over our lives. It's Psalm 141 and verse 3. You can see it on the screen. We should pray this prayer probably every day, every day. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I got one last thing, but I don't have time to talk about it. Write this down next to number three, and Brian and the team can come, and we'll close. The third thing I've written down here in my notes is you can't follow Jesus from a distance, friends. You can't follow Jesus from a distance. 
We go back up to the very beginning of the passage, Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 and 58. And we encounter Peter once again. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. You know, on the one hand, we have to give Peter some credit. He didn't run off into the darkness. He hadn't denied Jesus yet. He probably still thinks he's in a position of power in his life, moral authority in his life. He hadn't run off into the darkness like the other disciples. They followed him at a distance. And that's something you simply can't do. And here's why I say that. When I read these words that Peter followed Jesus from a distance, it makes me think that Peter was following Jesus from what he thought was a comfortable and a safe place. But listen, friends, when I read my Bible, in particular the Gospels, and I read the words of Jesus then one thing that is overwhelming to me is that following Jesus is not supposed to be comfortable or safe. You can't follow him from a distance. Not when you read words like this from Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. There's nothing comfortable or safe about following Jesus because to do that, to really do that, means you have to be willing to die to yourself. To die to yourself. And sadly, in our Western culture today, in many of our American churches, we have a lot of people who feel like they've found a safe and a comfortable way to fit Jesus into the schedule of their lives but let me tell you something, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Jesus, following Jesus, when you really do it, is never comfortable and it's never safe. Francis Chan in his book, Crazy Love, Overwhelmed by a Relentless God, says this, something is wrong when our lives, he's talking about our lives of as Christians, something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. You can't follow Jesus at a distance. I'm out of time, friends. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for the truthfulness of your word, and we thank you for those dark, gritty times that you do not hide from us because our hearts are broken with every word that we read about what happened to Jesus at this stage in his life. And yet, our hearts are also filled with the knowledge that Jesus was willing to do all of this for us. And so I go back to our communion meditation and I close with this thought. If Jesus was willing to die for us, what should we be willing to do for him? That certainly shouldn't be answered by the words, follow him from a distance. Help us to be all in, regardless of the cost. In Jesus' name, amen.